Have you heard some of the great insights from guests on Gangry the Podcast? Insights like... I've never had an editor throw an idea at me to write anything before. I always ask myself with yeah, stories, and, and I, I had the same going question. through the Bokov's archives. It has a question mark in my Imagine head I'm on your shoulder and that you're wearing a GoPro. Here is uh, carefully and Every single meticulously. about the whole Bundy story was just so interesting. It was a weird one to write because every time I tried First to outline... became a viral sensation, right? Like, it was the story. You cannot, you cannot do these stories. Or how, we, uh, how we understand the world. They're how we share our experiences. Believe it or not, Gangry the Podcast is now in its ninth year. In all that time, the best narrative journalists have told us how they report and write their stories. You can still listen to every single episode. They're on our website, along with links to all of the stories and books that we've talked about. You can find it all at gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. On this episode, I talk with Bradford Pearson. Pearson is the author of The Eagles of Heart Mountain, a true story of football, incarceration, and resistance in World War II America. The book, published by Atria Books of Simon & Schuster, went on sale today, January 5th. Pearson's book tells the story of Japanese internment camps during World War II. At one of those camps was a high school football team that offered hope to those held against their will on the outskirts of Cody, Wyoming. Pearson heard about this story all the way back in 2013, and it stuck with him. For a while, though, it was something he was curious about, but did his research on the side. The more he did, though, the more he realized writing about this group of people would be bigger than anything he had ever researched and written before. I think once I started seeing that this was a much bigger story beyond just a football team mm-hmm. was when I knew that I don't think I could have written this in 5,000 words or 6,000 words. Um, Cause there was just, there was just too much history that I needed to tell about why these people were sent to Wyoming. Pearson spent a lot of time in historical archives to tell this story. It's something he's always enjoyed doing, looking for a needle in the haystack for that bit of information that would tie everything together. He went to the National Archives, as well as archives in Wyoming and at UCLA. The thing that really helped me fill out a lot of their lives was that over the course of the 70s, 80s, and 90s, a few of them had done oral histories for different organizations and different colleges. So I was able to use their oral histories from these organizations to fill out their, their life story and then fill out some of the time in the camp and just sort of get a sense of who these guys were as people. Pearson has been on the podcast before. He was on episode 40 in November of 2015. At the time, he was an editor at Southwest, the magazine. We talked about his story, My Kidnappers, which was published in Philadelphia Magazine. He's written for the New York Times, Esquire, Time, and Salon, among other publications. As usual, I've linked to a lot of Pearson's work 
including the Eagles of Heart Mountain. You can find all of those links at gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast, Bradford. Thanks for having me, Matt. I really appreciate it. You know, I really should say that, um, I should say welcome back to Gangry the Podcast because um, you were on the show before, uh, five years ago, all the way back in 2015, when we talked about your Philadelphia magazine piece, uh, My Kidnappers. Five years. Yeah, that does seem, uh, well, that makes, I guess that makes both of us five years older. So it doesn't just make me feel bad. That's right. right? So <laughs> it's, it's, it's bad for both of us. Yeah, but, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Um, it's been... I guess if I had to get, if I had to guess, I would have only said four years, but I guess, I guess it has been a lot longer than, uh, than I thought that that story's come out. Well, so. I'm still having trouble believing that, um, I'm now approaching, um, almost having done this podcast for eight years now, which is kind of crazy. Um, you were on episode 40. This is going to be episode 86. Um, and, uh, I still, I still can't believe I'm still <laughs> trucking along. So, um, yeah. But, well, if I do something else, of, if I do something else of note in roughly 40 episodes, um, I'll let you know. That's, that's a great idea. And, you know, um, you know, I'm happy that we're talking about your book, uh, your first book, the Eagles of heart mountain and not about you getting kidnapped. Um, so, uh, that's <laughs> if I had nice. a, or if I had like a second kidnapping story to write about, it would yeah. be super depressing. That would be not good. Um, but I also wanted to mention <laughs> that, that you are now the second person who I have had to book through a publicist, uh, to get on the show. And the first was David Grant. So right now you can just say, you're on the same level as David Graham. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that my, uh, I'm sure that that same publicist would love to hear that or love to be working with a book that's probably as easy to work with as a David Graham book. <laughs> right, right. So um, again, you know, your book, The Eagles of Heart Mountain, uh, it goes on sale today. Uh, and uh, this is your first book. Can Can you tell me about it? Yeah, sure. The Eagles of Heart Mountain is... Um, a book, the short elevator pitch is that it's a book about the best high school football team in the history of the state of Wyoming, which was a group of incarcerated Japanese American teenagers during World War II. Um, that's sort of the short pitch, but um, what, I, what I tried to do with the book is I tried to use the story of the Eagles as a way to tell the story of Japanese American life during World War II. So um, I start the story in Los Angeles and Mountain View, California, and follow the players out to the camps first in California and then to Wyoming. And then at the end of the book, we look at all of their lives after the war. Um, so it was kind of an opportunity for me to expand on this, uh, you know, sort of the main narrative, which is the football team and, and talk more about 1940s America and the war and, you know, basically a, a sort of a country losing its moral way for a lot of reasons. You know, I enjoyed the book a great deal uh, when I read it, and 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 I was curious. Uh, all you know, kind of all you know, I was reading it. How how did this whole thing come about? How did you land upon uh, the story? And, and then, what made you think book? Considering you hadn't written a book before. Yeah. Um, well, in I guess it was the spring. Speaking of things that are a lot longer ago than I thought they were, the spring of two thousand and thirteen. I had a freelance assignment from this magazine in Dallas 
called Cowboys and Indians magazine. It's a magazine about the American West. And they asked me if I wanted to go to Yellowstone for a week. And the assignment was basically right about Yellowstone. So I was 29. I had just gotten fired from another journalism job and had nothing to do. So I was like, okay, yeah, I'll go to, I'll go. First of all, I'll go to Wyoming and you'll pay me to write about it. Yes, I'll, I'll do that. Uh, I don't have a whole lot going on right now. Um, so, so I went out and, uh, I was working on the story about Yellowstone and Heart Mountain, where the book takes place, uh, is out the Eastern entrance of Yellowstone National Park. So one day I was there and, uh, someone that had helped coordinate the trip to Yellowstone asked if, you know, if I wanted to go to this small museum where the Heart Mountain, uh, camp used to be. And I grew up in New York and I, you know, you know, the sort of, you get taught the broad strokes of Japanese American incarceration when you're in high school. So I was like, okay, yeah, I'll go and learn a little bit more and went in and was just totally floored and dumbfounded by how little I knew about the Japanese American experience in America. And then particularly about this chapter on world war II history. Um, there was a very small sort of phrasing on one of the museum's, displays that I won't I won't say it exactly because it gives away the ending of the book, but it basically talks about the fact that this concentration camp had a high school football team, which I thought was somewhat interesting, and that the football team was very good. So that sort of stuck in my head and I guess that was in June two thousand thirteen. And then the story came out months later and I think I mentioned the museum in a small sidebar about Yellowstone and then didn't really think about it for a while, but maybe six months would pass or a year would pass or 18 months. And I would think about that line on that one display about the football team. And it really ate at me. Um, so eventually, you know, I went and got other jobs and was working, but I couldn't, I couldn't get that one sentence out of my head. So I started doing some more research on the camp. And then I found that the camp had a weekly newspaper. So then I started reading the weekly newspapers and then I realized that the weekly newspaper had a sports section. And the sports section, you know, Heart Mountain, the camp itself, had about 11,000 people in it. Um, when it was open in Wyoming, it was the third largest city in Wyoming at the time, which is just an unbelievable statistic that I, I really couldn't get over while I was writing the book. Um, but because of that, they had a newspaper that was really, you know, they had a weekly newspaper that was really thorough. They had reporters. They had editors. Um, and... So luckily for me, these these newspapers had really thorough game accounts of the Eagles games. So then I started really digging in and figuring out who the best players were and their families. And then it kind of, I guess, snowballed from there to being um, thinking, oh, you know, this should this is kind of an idea that could be something a little bit bigger than, you know, what I originally envisioned it as, which, you know, was just sort of a little pet project of mine that I started learning about. Can I, can I ask um, you a question real quick? Yeah. Where did, um, did, where did you find those old, the copies of those old newspapers? Yeah. So there were two versions of that. So once I started really digging in, they had some versions of them. There, there's a whole online repository of them. There's a, um, a group called Den Show that is a nonprofit in Seattle that has copies of all of them. And, and their nonprofit is dedicated to 
teaching and um, sort of the remembrance of Japanese-American incarceration. So they were really helpful in that. And then also there was one person, there's a guy named Bacon Sakatani, who is sort of, um, he's, he, you know, he, he's just sort of an amateur historian himself who was actually at Heart Mountain as a kid who has a digital version of every single one of the papers. Wow. Um, and he sent me a CD with all of the newspapers on it. Um digitized and then uh, the the same city also had copies of the high school newspaper so i was able to once i got a hold of those i was able to sort of go through at my own pace go through the pdfs and what i did from the very beginning was i would go through each edition and in the one word document i would type out every hand type every story that was about the football team or about athletics or that mentioned anybody that was on the football team. So I could create a long searchable document that allowed me to sort of have time and place for every one of the players while they were in camp and sort of see how the team changed over the years and what these players were doing outside of the team and the other parts of the camp that, you know, the, that the newspaper deemed newsworthy. Mm-hmm. When when did you think, okay, I think I can do this, I can pull this off as a book? I kind of well, interrupted no, you I there. Still don't know. I, still, I still don't know if I can pull this off as a book. Um, <laughs> I think you did. <laughs> uh, okay, well, thanks. Um, you know, so I know that there's there's a lot of people who do this career and think that their goal is always to write a book. And that was never what I saw that, for this for me. Um, in this career, it was not a goal I always had, you know. Um, but then I guess it was after the kidnapping story and then some other stuff that I got an agent just to sort of see, you know, you know, cause then you're just like, Oh, okay, now maybe I will do this thing. Um, but I think once I started seeing that this was a much bigger story beyond just a football team mm-hmm. was when I knew that I don't think I could have written this in, 5,000 words or 6,000 words Um, because there was just, there was just too much history that I needed to tell about why these people were sent to Wyoming and not only who these players were, but who their parents were and what they experienced as first generation folks and what all these players experienced as the first generation of Japanese Americans, you know, so these guys that grew up in Hollywood or Mountain View or Seattle and what their lives were like, as teenagers, you know, as regular American teenagers in December 1941 when this happened. Um, And that was when I really started thinking, okay, I need to expand this and expand this idea bigger than anything I've ever done before, anything I've thought that I'm possible of doing. Um, And that's when I called my agent and I had two ideas, um, two possible book ideas. And I told him this idea and he's like, yeah, 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 no, he's like, you need to do this like right away. And I was like, well, I have the other idea. He's like, okay, I guess you can tell me that. And then <laughs> I told him, I told him, and then I told him the other idea. He's like, no, 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 no let's go back. The, the first one, the first one. So, um, once I sort of got a vote conference from him, then, um, you know, as anybody, I mean, you know, like you've done it, like as anybody that's written a book or, um, has worked on a proposal before you sort of have to figure out how much work on this do I need to do? you know, free beforehand to see if anyone would actually want to buy this story. 
Um, so, and that, by that point I was, um, by that point I was working at Southwestern magazine and basically would just work every night, just sort of, you know, pulling it out a little bit more, trying to figure it out and then reaching out to sources, um, which in this case was mostly, um, surviving family members. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Is this the, um, the first time that you've really dived into historical archives for, for, I mean, obviously for a book, but for even for magazine pieces, had you ever done that before? Um, I had, but definitely not to this, definitely not to this scale or, you know, in terms of like taking multiple trips to different archives and being, um, in, you know, different cities and different States looking, digging, like actually, you know, digging through boxes. Um, but it's something that I've always enjoyed is sort of looking for that needle in a haystack idea that sort of ties things together. And there were a couple things in this book that I found through a combination of, you know, interviews and digging and stuff that, you know, you spend whatever, six months trying to find something on it. It ends up being one sentence that nobody even understands the connections that you had to make to get that, to make that one, that one sentence. But, um, yeah, the archives. So I did. I looked at. I was in the National Archives, and then I was in the archives in Wyoming, UCLA, um, and then there were a bunch of digitized archives at UC Berkeley and Washington State, and a few other um, colleges and universities that were really helpful in terms of in terms of piecing together. You know, and and uh, the folks at Densho in Seattle. One of the biggest things that you know, because like I said, most of these players were dead um the thing that really helped me fill out a lot of their lives was that over the course of the 70s 80s and 90s a few of them had done oral histories for different organizations and different colleges so i was able to use their oral histories from these organizations to fill out their their life story and then fill out some of the time in the camp and just sort of get a sense of who these guys were as people and hear them and listen to them and see video of them, even in, even in their seventies when they were doing this seventies and eighties to sort of get a sense of their personalities. Um, you know, cause I, I couldn't pull that from a box score. Right. Right. And I know you mentioned on, on Twitter, I think, um, that there was also a set of photos that really helped you kind of put <clears> together <throat> what life was like. Um, can you, can you tell, can you tell me about that? Yeah, so um, there were a couple different photographers that were actually at the Heart Mountain camp. Um, There's some really famous photos that Ansel Adams took that he went through, and then Dorothea Lange came through as well. Um, But there's lots of other folks who were incarcerees of the camp that after a while, when the rules started getting a little bit more lax, the War Relocation Authority allowed folks who were incarcerated in the camp to have cameras. So that was when you really started to get a sense of who the actual people were and what their lives were. And they weren't staged photos and they weren't taken by the war relocation authority. Cause there, there are there's lots and lots of photos actually at the national archives um, and the library of Congress that you can see they're much more formal and they sort of show like, you know, sort of the, you imagine the, the Ken Burns photos of people standing in, cafeteria lines and things like that. But there was a few sets of photos um, that were taken by incarcerees that I was able to 
use and whenever I needed additional color, wherever I needed to sort of get a sense of what, you know, what a high school dance was like or what working um, in the sugar beet fields was like, even just being able to pull up a few different photos from that time and sort of look at them and think about and sort of try to place yourself in that moment and think about what that photo was, you know, on paper, but then also what it represented and, you know, what maybe what the weather was like. And they really helped me place the story and fill in a lot of the gaps that were missing because I wasn't able to interview, you know, most of the players. I was able to interview one player. Um, so, which uh, can you can you uh, say which player you were able to interview and what what was yeah, so what, was, what was that experience like? So there was one player. Um, his name is Tichi Akeda. Um, he lives in Los Angeles to this day, and um, it was great. It, it, it's really interesting because these the folks that I wrote about were so. I'm trying to think of the best way to put this. None of them saw what they achieved on this team as being worthy of news um, or being worthy of a book. They saw themselves in a camp as teenagers playing football. So seeing that and talking through this with Kichi and sort of trying to sort of gently nudge him in a direction of saying, you know, what, you know, (laughs) like being blunt, like what I think you did was really cool and pretty brave and inspired a lot of people that had nothing really to inspire them by for four years. You know, um, I mean, there were, uh, there were times when they were at the, 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 there were 11,000 people on camp and 5,000 of them would come watch a football game. Right. Um, and you know, 5,000 people showing up to a football game, no matter where you are, 5,000 people is a lot of people. Never mind when they're stacked eight, 10 people deep and there's no bleachers. Um, you know, these guys gave everybody in camp something to cheer for and something to make them feel a little bit closer to their homes. Um, so that interviewing experience was, as a reporter, kind of, it was the first time, one of the first times in my life where I felt like I was talking with someone and trying to explain to them what they did and why it was, uh, I think bigger than what, what they imagined it to be. Hmm. That's really interesting. Um, you, you, you did so much research um, for this book, both archival, but also talking with people. How did you sit down and, and take all that and then, and then write a book? <laughs> yeah, it was, um, I, I, I kind of bet on myself and I called my, I, I probably, they probably won't think about it this way, but I kind of called my publisher's bluff and said, Hey, if you give me enough money <laughs> that this can be my, that this can be my job, I will make this my only job. Like if you can give me an amount of money that I can feed my, you know, feed myself and still put a little bit of money in my kids' college funds. And, um, you know, I, I, I wasn't paying myself a lot of money. I think I ended up giving myself a salary of like, $35,000 for the year. Um, so, but they said, okay. Um, so then that meant I just actually had to do it. Right. <laughs> so, right. um, so basically 
you know, I did a lot of research before I did the book proposal, but then as soon as I got the book deal, which was March of 2018, I, um, basically just read, I read for months. I read books, oral histories. I watched oral history videos. I read really good books. I purposely read really bad books about it. Um, because I didn't want to repeat their mistakes. And these weren't, you know, I mean, I, I read, I read books that I don't think were purposefully bad, but I also read like Michelle Malkin wrote a book called like in defense of internment. And I was like, well, let me see what this shit is about. So I've read that. And, you know, you, you see the ways that people have told this story in the past, um, whether good or bad. And you sort of see where your story fits in this and not, excuse me, not my story, but the story of the Eagles and their families. Um, and you sort of see where you want to line your story up in that. Um, and for me, the way I saw it was that it was a brand new way to reach a new audience and tell this story. So there's lots of folks who have written memoirs from camp and there's lots of academic books Um but there aren't as many narrative stories that um, tell, there's not as many narratives that tell the story. So I knew for a fact that that was, you know, that's my background. That's what I wanted to do. But I thought that that was a way that as a white guy that I could tell this story and have it reach an audience of folks that maybe hadn't heard it before. So, you know, if, if I could hook this story on football and World War II, I could convince somebody probably to pull it off a shelf that might not have reached for a story that was, you know, at least on the cover, just a story about Japanese American incarceration. And that's unfortunate, but it is a reality in terms of like the kind of reader that you're trying to reach. Yeah. Um, this is probably a selfish question on my own part, considering I actually have a proposal that I'm trying to, to get an agent for that's historical narrative. Right. Um, but I would, and if it ever sells, I would love to know, like when you're writing, how do you handle all the notes, right. That show up later oh, yeah. in the book without losing the writing momentum. Oh, do you mean like the actual end notes? Yeah. Yeah. That was, I mean, that was just, I was really bad at the beginning. Um, and when I was doing my end notes, I was so angry with myself, uh, for not being better with it at the beginning. This is why but I'm asking the just, question. <laughs> yeah. Eventually you just kind of get, um, it just becomes sort of second nature where you say like, okay, I wrote this sentence or I wrote this paragraph. Um, let me just throw in a comment here on the side, what the source material is. So whether that's a book and a page number, whether that's a document, like the name of a document that you have on your Google drive or whether that's a photo or, you know, a page in an interview transcript with a time note, like it was basically just, you know, and there's times where you write one sentence and you do it. And then there's times where you write 500 words and you look back up and you say, okay, after, after that 500 words or whatever, before you go eat lunch or go to the bathroom, just, okay, here's the notes that I need for this. And as I was looking through and doing my end notes in May and June, I saw, you know, I kind of saw as the book went along, there being more and more end notes that I'd left for myself. And that was when I realized that I'd gotten better at it. Um, and I remember, um, I remember something that Sarah Weinman said on Twitter once about that, which is basically just like, 
it sucks when you're doing it, but you're going to really, you know, pat yourself on the back that you were smart about it at the beginning. Um, and if I ever do write another book, I will definitely be much smarter about it at the beginning. Um, because there's times when you're writing, you're just like, Oh, I know where that came from. Or I remember that. And you're just like, you're not that smart. Like you're not going to be able to remember this. <laughs> you won't. I know. Four months, or six months or eight months later, or whenever you're doing it, and you're pulling your hair out because you can't remember where you got this one statistic about strawberry crop yields in Los Angeles County or whatever that you want to cite. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Sarah is so good. Her, her book, um, the real Lolita, which I talk with her about on the show is fantastic as well. And she definitely, she's good at what she does. So it's always good to, to learn something yeah. from her <laughs> and her Twitter. Feed, yeah. Which... And that's, I know. And that's why when I saw that, I was like, I was like, Oh, she's so thorough and so good at what she does and the way that she writes. I was like, okay, that's, that's, I mean, obviously it's good advice no matter who gave it. But when I saw that, I was like, okay, I really need to lock this in. Yeah. Yeah. It, this is your first book. Um, did you change any of your writing processes, you know, as you're, as you're, when you're sitting down mm. to write versus magazine pieces or is it just doing it more? <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of it's doing it more, but you know, I found the editing process that I was a lot, there were times where I was going through editing. I was just like, okay, I need to get rid of these thousand words. Like I felt like with the book process, the book process is harder because, you know, you're just writing for six straight months or whatever. And sometimes at the end of the day, you just want to get a thousand words down or 1200 words down and it's garbage, but you know that you did it. Uh, and for me writing features, uh, I tend to be a pretty quick writer after I've done all my reporting. Um, and that was not the case with the book. Um, and that was kind of frustrating, uh, because I just felt like you're sort of beating your head against the wall. You're like, this isn't the way that I write. This isn't the style I write in. How do I translate a 4,000 word story or 5,000 word story into a 90,000 word story? And eventually you sort of have to realize, okay, your tone is going to be different. Your style of writing is going to be different because you can't keep that pace up for 90,000 words. But there's ways that you can write scenes and ways you can write chapters that more closely reflect your actual style of writing. And maybe some people can keep that up. There's lots of people that I know can keep that up for 90,000 words in a book. Um, but for me, and maybe some of it was the subject material, you know, uh, and some of it was just, you know, trying to tell these stories respectfully in a way that, I think maybe some of the tone with some of my features a little is a little bit lighter. Um, but I still wanted to find ways to do that throughout the book. Um, and for me, for me, when I really sat down, I had a few, I had like the first three chapters were due maybe four months before the book was due. Um, or maybe, no, it, it was even more than that. It was like a, a year before. So they just could make sure that I wasn't screwing it up completely. Right, right. Um, and then... <laughs> Uh, and then I actually wrote when I got, when I sat back down after writing those first three chapters, I didn't write again for another probably six months once I got back into like real research. And then when I jumped back into it to jumpstart my writing process, I wrote a chapter that I really wanted to write, but I knew it sort of act as a standalone chapter. I wrote it out of order 
just so that I could write something that I knew would be a fun chapter to write about. And it's, um, you read the book. It's, uh, it's the chapter about, uh, Santa Anita and the riots. So for me, that chapter was like a lot of fun to write about because it, it allowed me to dig into the history of Santa Anita park, the racetrack. And for that, I found a ton, sorry, I'm just looking at the book right now. I found a ton of really great information from, the day that the track opens, the Los Angeles Times sent like five different reporters to the opening. So they sent spent excuse me. So they sent they sent sports reporters, uh, business reporters, and they sent their fashion reporter. <laughs> so they were able. So I was able to you know write that chapter in a way that had lots and lots of good detail because the L.A. Times decided to send five different writers over the course of two days to the opening of this track. Um, so, and then also, you know, later on in that chapter, this doesn't give much weight because it's early on in the book, but there's a riot, uh, an uprising at Santa Anita. So I knew that it, it, writing that chapter helped me get back into the flow of it. And maybe a little bit mentally, it was like, okay, no, this is, there is a reason you pick this career <laughs> and it's because you like, it's fun to write. Um, so, uh, so that helped sort of get back into the flow of it after, you know, a year or whatever of research. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a one minute break here. Um, we will be back with more from Bradford Pearson, whose first book, the Eagles of heart mountain, a true story of football incarceration and resistance in world war II America went on sale today. This is gangry. The podcast. <laughs> Gangri the Podcast is brought to you by the Digital Journalism Program at Fairfield University. The Bachelor of Arts degree in Digital Journalism is a rigorous 12-course program designed to provide students with the skills, knowledge, and experience needed to take part in today's quickly changing media world. The podcast is also brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield University. The college grounds students in the 500-year-old Jesuit tradition of academic rigor and personal reflection while providing them with the critical skills needed to succeed in work and life. To learn more about the Digital Journalism Program and the College of Arts and Sciences, visit www.fairfield.edu. Welcome back to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. I've been talking with Bradford Pearson uh, about his book, The Eagles of Heart Mountain, uh, which comes out today. Uh, Bradford, uh, back in the summer, we actually talked for a piece I wrote for Neiman Storyboard about how narrative journalists were writing in the midst of the pandemic. Uh, how much book work did you have to do when you and your wife and your young kids were all cooped up in your house? And, and how did you get it done? Yeah, that was... Um... So my first draft of my book was due uh, just about a year ago. So it was uh, December 15th, uh, 2019. And then I think I got my edits back, first wave of edits, maybe by the end of January. So I was going through all those edits. And then, you know, uh, March 13th, I think, was that Friday, Friday the 13th. And then by that Monday, the 16th, uh, our school was, our daycare was closed and everything was shutting down in Philadelphia. I had gotten my first wave of edits back 
I want to say. Um, but I knew there was going to be more edits coming. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was really hard. My wife, um, is an attorney and, you know, makes most of our money. So, uh, so that was managing her career, our two children, and, you know, sort of the pressure that comes with writing your first book, uh, was crazy difficult. Like it was, it was so hard. I mean, every, the thing about COVID that I've found that has actually been a little bit calming is the knowledge that everybody is going through something, you know? So like some people, some people have kids and that's really hard. And some people are alone and that's really hard. Some people are 70 and, you know, they have to deal with, you know, a spouse that's sick or whatever it is. So that was sort of my mantra whenever something was bad that was happening was saying like, you know, for the most part, unless you're super rich, like you're all going through something right now. So my wife and I would split up the day and that one of us would work in the morning, one of us would work in the afternoon and that we would both work at night. Um, so I was lucky in that I wasn't sitting there having to write the draft of my book. Um, I know that there's a lot of folks I was talking to, Pam Koloff the other day about this exact thing. And, and it's like, and I was talking to her, I just said, Pam, like, I can't, I can't, I, I felt so bad. I can't imagine how hard it must be to actually be sitting there writing right now. And I know that there's lots of folks who are doing that. You know, it's been nine months and the book world hasn't stopped. And there's people that are having to write these entire books with their kids under their desks or their kids on a computer or whatever their situation is. And I was really, really lucky in that I got most of this done right before everything shut down. Um, that said, when I had to do my end notes and all of that, that was really, really hard um, because that's the kind of thing that, it's not necessarily writing and it's somewhat mindless in terms of like having the information there at your disposal as long as you've kept good enough notes, but it's still double checking things. And that was, I think my end notes were due at the beginning of June, um, sometime around there. And that was, you know, that was the first time that we broke down and my wife took the kids to her parents' house in Maryland. Cause it was just like, there's no way that, we fin- you know, you know, both of us can't be suffering right now in terms of both of our careers can't tank in this moment. Um, so that was, and I, and then I think, then I was able to do all the end notes and like, I think I, I worked like 16, 17 hour days and did it in like three days straight. Cause I knew that they were going to come back. So, so, um, the book is done. It's out. It's out today. I've said that a couple of times, uh, which is cool. Um, are you, I appreciate, I appreciate you saying it a couple of times. Thank I'm you just, that. you know, I'm just happy to have somebody on the show the day the book goes on sale. Uh, so I'm going <laughs> to keep saying it. Um, uh, are, I'm assuming, are, are you freelancing again? Yeah. So right now it's kind of a weird, uh, it's kind of a weird time because there's so much book promotion stuff that goes on. So doing interviews and, you know, sort of keeping track with your, the publicist and marketing people at Atria and Simon Schuster that I'm freelancing, but I'm actually not doing journalism stuff. I have a, I have a side gig where I work for a content marketing department where I do like slideshows and 
information about like life insurance policies and it pays really, really well. And I was, was going to say it, it probably pays way better than <laughs> freelance journalism at it, this point. It does. Um, and that was some of the work that I did. I did some of this while I was writing the book, um, mostly because it helped me put my mind at ease when I knew that my first chunk of my advance would run out and I wasn't going to have to, you know, dip into our savings or things like that. And I've actually found a little bit of, I don't know, it, it, it's, it's nice to have your brain work in a completely different way um, and know that you're getting paid well for it. Um, I'll probably won't do as much of that come this spring when I realize that I have to get back into the actual, you know, my actual job market. Um, but it's, you know, I, I've never begrudged anyone that works in our field that has to find another way to pay their bills because our field less and less is paying people's bills. So, um, you know, whenever somebody else has to do something else or have a day job and write at night or do sort of a 50-50 split with having, you know, a, a client or whatever it is, you know, I, I know that some people either look down on it or think that there's something unethical about it. But from my perspective, I've never done anything in that part of my life that has even come close to interacting with the work I do in journalism. So um, I've never considered it to be a dilemma, at least for myself personally. Um, and I mean, I know that it helps pay my kids daycare bills and helps you know, put money away from them for, for college and for our retirement. So, and if it keeps me being able to have money while I work on, you know, other freelance stuff or maybe another book idea, then, you know, I don't know how anyone can really begrudge it. Yeah. I was going to ask you, is there another book idea? You have one popping out of your head already? Uh, I do. I don't know. It's one of those things where I... Uh, it, it is sort of, I'm sort of nervous to start doing it again because I know that once I start doing it, I'm just going to be like, oh, I have to do this. Right. Um, and, you know, so there's a little bit of hesitation on my part, but it's mostly just procrastination as opposed to <laughs> hesitation. I think that's mostly um, what I do as well. So, <laughs> yeah. And just like staring at the bins of research from Eagles and then being like, oh, I guess I actually have to find a place for those to go if I'm going to start doing another thing um and there's part of it that's just like my wife and i both work out of our house right now and you know there's just there's only so much space to to do things so you know it, you know any uh tips for any college journalism students who might be looking to go you know into the into the world of freelance journalism or even maybe possibly at some point in time writing books that you might give yeah. after you got this one book down done and, and you're kind of rolling now. Yeah. I mean, I'd say that from, from my perspective is that like, I know some people take this career super seriously and I think that that, you know, it can be a serious career, but you also just have to be like, you get to tell stories for a living. You get to tell other people's stories for a living. And there's a certain level of respect and dignity that you have to have for your sources. So in the end, like you're sort of secondary. Um, I would also say that, I don't know. I, I think just, just, just using everything at your disposal. Like when I wrote Eagles, I had a bunch of stuff that I couldn't put in the book and 
it just so happened that I had a couple ideas and then a Times reporter reached, or excuse me, a Times editor reached out to me and they were doing a special section about the end of World War II. And they were like, you know, do you have any story ideas? And I was like, oh, this is actually perfect. And that's how I got my first two Times bylines was just saying, you know, thinking about a story that I wanted to tell in a slightly different way. So I think that there's a lot of things that you just, with this career, you can't be too precious and you can't be above, you know, you, you can't put yourself up above um, other folks or certain stories or, or work that you have to do because everyone still has bills to pay. So um, I guess that's kind of where I fall on this. Yeah. And I know that, like I said earlier, like I know there's lots of people who are career dedicated journalists and I really, really admire that. And I consider myself to be one, but there's also just, you know, times where you have to make money to help your family. I do that too. Well, Bradford, uh, the Eagles of heart mountain, uh, I'm going to say it one more time goes on sale or is on sale today. (laughs) Uh, congratulations on the first book and, uh, thanks for coming on the podcast to talk about it. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. I always, uh, appreciate you having me on and I always have a nice time. I've been talking with Bradford Pearson. He's the author of The Eagles of Heart Mountain, a true story of football, incarceration, and resistance in World War II America. The book went on sale today. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at Gangry Podcast. Gangry is spelled G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, or any Google Play app. Just search Gangry, that's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, podcast. Gangry the Podcast is produced in Donnarumma Studios at Fairfield University. It's made possible by Fairfield University's digital journalism and sports media programs, both housed in the College of Arts and Sciences. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us.